The scripture reading comes from Philippians 2, 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. This is part 10 of our series in the book of Philippians called The Koinonia of Grace. And it's actually very fitting that we are looking at this passage, verses, verses 19 through 24. And for most of you, it may not seem like much is going on in this set of verses, verses 19 to 24. Uh, Paul is in prison, actually. He's saying, I'm going to send you a leader, a guy named Timothy. And he's, in, he's really one of his best men. And it seems just like a little piece of business that's going on. I'm sending you this guy, Timothy. But actually, I've been meditating on this passage. In these few verses is the secret of how to have a strong and powerful society. I'm not kidding. In this set of verses is actually so much of what's wrong in our own society. And really the answer for some of the tremendous problems that our own culture and our society faces. And it comes out of this, a certain kind of issue. Now, I'm going to talk about something very difficult today, um, controversial, uh, and for some of you, maybe even perhaps even offensive. I'm going to talk about the very important need for manhood, manhood and for fathers, fathers, raising up sons, and I'm not only talking about biological fathers to sons, I'm really talking about spiritual fathers, and spiritual fathers raising up sons, and then, and of course, daughters too. And um, this is a very tremendously important passage, and I, it, so I want you really especially to pay attention. We're going to go through this in three parts as I usually do. Part one, discerning the best men, and let me put this in parentheses, and women. If you raise up the best men, you also get the best women. Discerning the best men and women. Part two, the tremendous importance of spiritual fatherhood. Because that's what's going on in this passage, spiritual fatherhood. And really, spiritual fatherhood is the secret of a really strong and righteous, honor, honorable, a, a, a society filled with humble Grateful, servant people that make their society strong with strong marriages and strong families and, and joyful children who willingly from their heart seek righteousness and humility. The tremendous importance of spiritual fatherhood. And part three, giving and sending out our very best. Part one, let's talk about discerning the best men and let me put in parentheses, women. It says here in this text, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. And then listen, I want you to describe how he says. He's going to say, he, here he is, he's a leader, a pastor who planted this church. He's in prison, but he's still doing ministry. And the way he's going to do ministry is I'm going to send you somebody 
And it's a very special person, a guy named Timothy. And this is the way he describes him. Verse 20, for I have no one like him. There's nobody like this guy. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And I want that, that description to ring out in your mind. He's genuinely concerned for your welfare. For then, and then, he, and then he, contra- he contrasts Timothy to a bunch of all these other guys that, that he knows, and some of them are his leaders, and he says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. Not those of Jesus. Timothy, this is the kind of man he is. Um, Timothy is the kind of person that will come to serve you. He's there for you. Not like all these other people that seek after their own interests. And I want you to see in there, in, this set, in these couple verses, is actually a contrast that really goes right back to the rest of what we've been, I've been preaching week in and week out in Philippians chapter 2. It's what I like to call a Philippians 2 man. That's what Timothy is. Right? In Philippians 2, um, Paul asks people in the church, he commands them actually, he says, do nothing from rivalry or self-conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Think about the interests of others. Do not <clears throat> only look to your, toward your own interests, but look to the interests of others. But now here's, here's a man named Timothy this is exactly the kind of man that he is. He doesn't look to his own interests. He looked to the interests of others. In, and then in Philippians 2, there's this picture, this tremendous picture of a man named Jesus. He does not consider equality with grass something to be grasped, with God something to be grasped. And as I've taught you, what that means is he's not looking to be his own Lord his own Savior, and then constantly looking to be served, his own interest, because that's what we want, right? Whereas we look toward our interests, we're always wanting somebody to serve us. But it says, here's a man, Timothy, like Jesus. He comes to be a holy, humble servant, to spill himself out for you. Timothy, two men. Hmm. Um, there, are certain, there are certain pastors and theologians that I, I respect, and they actually have a description of this whole way of life and they talk about this as the upside-down kingdom. Jesus, he was equal. He is equal with God, and he made himself nothing. He emptied himself to be a servant out of humility to actually incur cost, a cross so great it was of the cross, to serve and bless others. And then he says, when other people and when other, um, when other men arise to chase after this way of life, these are the very best men. This is what's going on. When you walk into a room and into a, a, a community, it could be a church, or it could be your company, or it can be a school, or it could be a neighborhood. Do you see men like this? Do you see women like this? Women who have genuine concern for the interests of others, and they will incur costs out of humility. They don't care if people even look down on them for this, because certainly people look down on Jesus I'm sure people look down on Timothy for being this type of a man. And yet, do you see people in your, in your community, in your company that are like this? If you only have one or maybe none, let me tell you, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. But when men such as Timothy, and obviously even back then there weren't that many, Paul had only one guy. He says, you know what he's saying? I'm going to send you my best. This, these are the best men. These are the best people. 
And the kingdom of God arises, there's servanthood. It's an upside down world. In this world, we think the best people are the strongest. They're the strongest. They're the best looking. They got the most money. They got the most power. They, they are a mass power and constantly they're always being served. But he says, no, Timothy is not like this. He actually will be a servant like Jesus. And he'll look after your welfare, not after his own self-interest. These are the best people. Now let me, some people think, maybe this is just a Paul thing. Paul talks about this. No, 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 no. This is of God. This is why it is God's kingdom. It is truly God. He takes all the values of power and of grasping and of selfishness and serve me, serve me. I'm Lord and master of my own life and savior of my Lord. And, and God, he flips this thing on his old ear. This is why it's upside down. This is the way Jesus puts it. Jesus is the one being described in Philippians 2. But I says this in, num in numerous different places, but let me just give you one example. In Mark chapter 10, this is the way he puts it, in 42 to 45, Jesus says, he's talking to his disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, the Gentiles are the people who don't know God, you know that those who are rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. I think you could say, it's, you know that those who are the rulers of the Americans, the, the leaders of their companies and the richest and the most powerful and the best looking, you know that they lord it over other people, right? Isn't that true? Of course it's true. And they're great ones, they're powerful ones, they're celebrities, they're stars. <laughs> they're great ones, exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, those who follow me. <laughs> Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be, and listen to the word he used, slave of all. This is a, I mean, we don't even know what slaves are. <laughs> um, this is a society where the kings and the emperors, this is, a, the Romans had senators. They had senators and kings, and they had centurions. They had powerful people, and slaves were the bottom rung. And Jesus isn't just saying, if you want to be great, he says, you must be a slave, not just a slave, a slave of all. And people in this society would walk into a household and they'd be the master of the household and there'd be all gradations of servants and slaves and then they'd be the bottom guy. <laughs> and he'd be the slave of all. And Jesus is saying, if you would be great, you must be the slave of all. You know what the, the one who was at the bottom rung would do? He would wash the feet of the people who would show up to be guests in the household, and there you know, what did Jesus do before he went to the cross? He washed feet. Again and again and again, Jesus saying, you want to be great, you want to be among the very best people? This is how it is. Philippians 2 men. And these, this is the way you have actual power and strength in society. You have to have an arising of men who will do this. They, they may even make money. They may have great wisdom and knowledge and education, but they will, they will not have pride. They'll have humility, and they'll spill themselves out for their wives, for their children, for their neighbors. And then when this happens, guess what? The, the women will be joyful. The women will say, these are worthy men. They will say, these are men worthy of respect. I can submit to this person as my husband. I could submit to this person as my pastor. We can actually submit this, to this person as our senators and our leaders and our mayors and, 
and as our coaches and our teachers, this is what needs to happen. Until this happens, the whole society is in deep trouble. And as you can tell, of course, our society is in very, very deep trouble. We don't have nearly enough men like this. We don't have the best people, the best men, and the best women. And if we don't have best, and I know this is controversial, the secret to getting the best women is to raise up the best men. If we get the best men, the women will come too. But if you don't go, if everybody's just an individual, oh, we're just individuals, and everybody's just going to be an individual, we're going to just get our best life. In other words, everybody's going to seek their own self-interest. Everybody's going to be their own God, their own Lord, their own Savior, grasping after equality with God, then we're in big trouble. We're going to have a terrible society filled with anger and grumbling, as I talked about last week, and selfishness and lust and greed and full of lying. I'll, I'll, I'll be good to you, but really it's just a lie. I just want to use you. This is what happens in our society. We need more and more of the very best men. That's part one. That's it. That was fast, wasn't it, for me? <laughs> um, I want to get to part two, the importance of spiritual fatherhood, because some of you are going, well, Pastor, that is a really big problem. How do we get more of these very best men? And the, the secret is right in this passage. And let me take you to this. Part two, the secret is spiritual fathers. Not biological fathers, spiritual fathers. Part two, here's what here, here, let me take you to the verse that says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. See, Timothy is not just, just some guy that a pastor said, hey, this guy knows stuff and he, he likes to go to church all the time. No, no. Timothy is a leader. He's of the best men and other people can see it. He's been tested. He has proven worth. His humility has been tested. His patience, his perseverance, his servanthood, his generosity, his forgiveness his knowledge, his wisdom, his kindness, all of that has been tested and proven. And this is what it says. You know Timothy, his proven worth. And then here's the, here's the secret. As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. That's the secret. That's the secret to a great and powerful society. That there will be sons who will recognize that guy that guy, I want that guy to be like a father to me. And he'll teach me real manhood. And then the men will become righteous and honorable and humble. And then the women will be joyful. And then we'll have strong marriages. And we'll have strong families. And the children will grow up under righteousness and under great care. And then the children will chase after this beauty and this glory. And you'll have an incredible society. That's how it happens. Let me take you to a, a, a passage and um, there's the, this is so important that the Bible, there's multiple books on this. <laughs> you don't know this. Do you know there's multiple books on the Bible on leadership and on manhood? It's called 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. <laughs> and of course, two of the books are named after this guy, Timothy. That's how important Timothy is. The movement from Paul to Timothy and the relationship of Paul to Timothy of spiritual fatherhood to spiritual sonship. It is so important. God put three books, such books in the Bible. And let me just, let me just read from you how, this is how 2 Timothy opens up, right? This is what Paul says to uh, 2 Timothy in, in, at the beginning of 2 Timothy. 
This is how he talks to him. And just listen. Timothy, my beloved child. They're not related, okay? Paul's single. Paul doesn't have any own biological children. In our society, people think that a father is a guy um, that, that has sex with a woman and then there's kids. No, that's a biological father, but that's not even the most kind of father. And in fact, there's a lot of guys like that. They're not even real dads. They're just sperm donors. And then they raise up boys, and those boys just act like boys, even though they're, they're 25-year-old. We have 25-year-old boys and 35-year-old boys because they were never fathered. But here's a man who never even got married, never had biological children. He was never a sperm donor, so to speak. But to another man, a younger man, who, who he's not even directly related to, he says, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And listen to what he says next. And I know many of you, when you read the Bible, you hear these, these verses just kind of go by, kind of like blah, 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 blah. They just go by. It's tremendously important. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. And listen to this. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. You know what a spiritual father does to a spiritual son? He prays for him often. As I remember your tears... I long for you. You know what a son does when he gets parted from his father? He cries. Unashamedly. So, so many men today think that you can't cry. Let me say something. If you don't love a man so deeply, so greatly, that when he's parted from you, you will not cry, you're not among the very best men. Let me say that to you. Timothy. He was parted from his spiritual father, and he cried. And when his father remembered this thing, he just, I, I, I want to see you so much. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Let me say something to, to all the men in this room, okay? This is one of the most important joys in life. If there is no men that you know, that, you, that they, will, they would weep when they are parted from you, and you long to see them. And this is one of the most powerful joys you have. Men, you, you don't know what it's like to be among the best men. You don't know the deepest joy. Ladies, of course, this is true. Of course, this is not, I'm not only talking to men. <laughs> Ladies, if there's no spiritual mother in your life, you would not weep when you're parted from them. And there's no, whether it's your own daughter or other women who could be like daughters to you that you long to see them, and it would produce this tremendous joy in your heart. Some of the deepest, most powerful joy that you can have, you, you don't know what's important in life. You know why this is so important? Because there's a love between a father and a son in God, which is absolutely eternal and most joyful. And this Father-to-son love that's happening between Paul and Timothy, that is something like the love between God and his son. God who is a father, God is son. This is divine. This is life. And then Paul goes on to say this to, to Timothy. Um, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that, first, that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, 
and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Let me, let me put this to you in a, in a strange way. Spiritual fatherhood to sonship passes from Lois to Eunice. Moms, women practice it too. Women can be like God. Women can practice spiritual fatherhood and be like the father and practice a profound love and honor and wisdom that they, they pass on to their daughter and their daughters become like sons. Isn't that strange? <laughs> I know it's a strange language I'm using because here's Timothy among the very best men. Where did he get it from? <laughs> First, it came from Lois, which was passed down to Eunice. And then Eunice had this wonderful boy named Timothy, and Timothy came under the spell of a father who was not even his own dad, a guy named Paul. And he became one of the very best men. This is that important. You know, some of you are wondering um, why, why we're going to have this women's Bible study. Here we go. <laughs> this is because we very much care about this most powerful thing, spiritual fatherhood and sonship. I want to say something. Um, this thing is going on in our society all the time. Um, this, 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 this dynamic is very needed. Do you know, I'm just going to speak out to, to especially all the parents and especially to the men. Um, there are boys, all boys, you know what they long for and chase? Manhood. First, and, first Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, they're all books to teach leadership. And most people go, oh, that's leadership in the church. Well, of course, that's leadership in the church. But do you not know that a church is a family? And so do you know what 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, it's book, all three of them are books about spiritual fatherhood. And spiritual fatherhood is about manhood. They're all books about manhood. <laughs> and all young boys, you know what they want? They all want to be men. And they want to be worthy men. They want to spill out their lives and serve something that's worthy of their whole life. That's why they seek courage. That's why they seek knowledge. That's why they seek honor. That's why little boys watch cartoons where they're superheroes, and then their superheroes go, go into danger, and then sometimes they think it's incredible, but sometimes those heroes die. <laughs> they love watching these movies, and then and again. And then these boys... You have eight-year-old boys, and they're looking around in life all the time. Where are the men that are like the heroes? In other words, when they talk, that's the word that our society uses, heroes. Heroes is just code word for a real man. He were heroes, you know what we mean by heroes? Is for the very best men. <laughs> and so we have eight-year-old boys. They're looking at the 15-year-olds. And if a 15-year-old boy will take another 8- or 9-year-old boy and says, hey, treat the girls like this. Follow the coach like this. Practice ball like this. Read your books like this. You know what those boys will do? That's exact. That's what those boys will do. But if the 15-year-old boys, are, they're, they're always talking about the girls in lustful, disgusting fashion, and they, and they want to go around and sell drugs, as I talked about last week, because that's the only way they're going to have money and seek their self-interest, guess what the 8-year-old boys do? <laughs> that's what they do. But then, then they go to 15, and then you know what the 15-year-old guys look for? They look at the 25-year-old guys. 
And the 15-year-old guy's looking at the 25 year old says, show me. Show me how to get to college. Show me how to get my first job. Show me how to, you, you, you know how to do it. And so, of course, you know, some of the athletic guys, they look at the more, more athletic guys. Some of the guys who, who, who are into computers and they're, they're, they're really smart in math and science, they're looking at those guys. The guys who, who, who are interested in making money, they don't, they're not only interested in making money. They're looking at the guys who are, they can tell they're going into that business world. Show me, show me. The guys who, who are like, hey, I, I want to have a really good girlfriend and, 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 a, and one day a really good wife. They look at those guys and you're like, you know how to attract worthy women. And they don't just, and you don't just slip around with them, but you know they actually admire you. See? And then the 25-year-old guys, the 25-year-old, they do this too. Where do the 25-year-old guys look? They look at the 35-year-olds and the 45-year-olds because they're saying, show me what it's like when you have kids. Show me how to be a dad because I'm scared. <laughs> Any of you young guys? <laughs> who are singles, or uh, you're like, dude, I'm just, when I got married, I wasn't afraid to be married, but I was terrified to be a dad. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you got young, young men, and then when they first have their baby, you know, they pretend like they're not scared, but they're all scared. <laughs> and so then, what do they do? They're looking at the men who are 35 and 45. And then guess what? When they get to 45, it doesn't stop. <laughs> they're looking at the 55, 65, and 75-year-old men because he says, when I go toward the twilight of my life, show me. Because when I'm older, I want the 45-year-old men to look at me and say, you're a real man. You know honor. You know servanthood. You've had perseverance. You've done it. Show me. Show me. See, how do we get the very best men? You don't just go into a class and learn it from a book. <laughs> it's not done in some one. It's not even done over one instant sermon. It takes men. And let me say something else to you, too. Our society, um, if you don't have men like this in our society, it produces very angry and unhappy women. The secret to this is actually the men. If you just tell everybody, men and women, we're all equal, and you're all just going to go just do this. By the way, the Bible teaches very, very much so. Genesis chapter 1 before the Bible teaches the headship of men, the headship of husbands over wives, the leadership of godly men in the family, including the family of the church, right? before the Bible ever teaches that stuff, it says that male and female, he made them in the image of God. Men and women are absolutely equal in worth under God. Absolutely. So ladies, don't ever, please don't think that. But they're not equal necessarily in authority. And... Women want there to be worthy men. <laughs> I just notice this all the time. And there's so many women, young, middle-aged, and old, and they're getting more and more upset, I can tell. They're upset, they're frustrated. Ladies, are, are you among them? <laughs> because there's, there's just not enough of these best men. And when they're not enough of these best men, that's what they do. Well, we have so many women in our society. If you get more and more of these best men, the women are happy. They're saying, that guy... That's a guy I want to marry. I want to have that guy's baby. And then if he turns to me and says, hey, the Bible tells me I'm the head under Jesus as the head. Would you please respect my leadership and submit to me? I'm going to make mistakes, but I'll humbly be willing to die for you because that's what Jesus does. And I want to obey Jesus. Would you respect and submit to me? And we'll raise our children this way. The women will say, yes. 
You're that kind of a man. I'll give myself to you that way. And then you get beautiful marriages. <laughs> the children have wonderful happiness because their mom and dad live this way and their marriage is this way. <laughs> but when the men aren't like this, then the women go, oh gosh, they're idiots. Because the men are power-driven and greed-driven and self-interest-driven. Then the women just go, can't depend on them. Then what we get is, we get, this is what I see in our society. We get women who says, I have to grab after power. I have to make my own money. I have to get my own way. So the women seek after power. The women go, I'm going to get my education, and I'm going to climb the ranks, and I'm going to get men to seek and, and obey me. And then, so then you get power-driven women. Control freaking this angry, power-driven, resentful women. Some are maybe very talented and very smart, but we get a lot of very ambitious, power-driven women. And then there's a whole bunch of other women. Well, they're not, they're not interested in power. They, the way they hook their man is, well, the way I'm going to get a man is I'm going to use lust. Because men, I can use sex. And so they use lust to try to hook a woman. So all around our society, I see resentful, power-driven women and lots of lust-oriented, very very sad women. But where are the joyful women? The glad women. They're glad because they know their man will die for them. Their man will stick it out in a job that he doesn't even like because every day he's dying to himself to say, for you, my wife, I'll die to be your servant, to be our children's servant like Jesus, like Timothy, the very best man. This is what we need to happen. And there's not nearly enough of it. I want to say something about this. Just, you know, if we proclaim the gospel, you know what? And there'll be a set of men like Paul who will do this and say, I will die for Jesus and humbly sacrifice his life for Jesus. You know what happens? Timothy's will notice. Because all the, the young boys and young men, you know, they're all potential Timothy's. They're eight-year-old potential Timothys, 15, 25, and 35-year-old. They're all potential Timothys. Men will walk into this room, will come into our circles, into our GLFs, our Gospel Life families, and will come into our circles, and they're going to assess all the other men, and they're going to check them out. It says, hey, you got something? <laughs> you got something? And men can tell. Boys, 25, 15, they can tell when they come into the presence of a man who's better than them. They can tell. Huh? Think that you got something. You got wisdom. You got righteousness. You got staying power. Man, look at your wife. Gosh. You know, I don't mean to boast. Um, I don't mean to boast. Being a pastor is not a job, right? You know, one of the most important things a pastor has to do is to be and learn to be a, a Philippians 2 type of man. It's one of the, that's why I'm so deeply convicted. I'm not a really good Philippians 2 man but I'm chasing. And I'm not even the best of the Philippians 2 men, but I've had men say to me, I've actually even had older men say to me, this is really strange. I've had older men say to me, of course I've had younger men say to me, it says, how did you get a wife like that? They meet grace, and I can tell they marvel at her. Right? I can tell, they, can, they look at our marriage and they see something beautiful. They meet our kids. <laughs> and my kids aren't even the best kids, they're pretty good kids. And they, they meet our kids and they're saying, I want what you got. I've had older men say that. 
I've had younger men say that, hey, when I'm at your age and when I'm at that stage, I want what you got. I want to be like that. See? They're all chasing. It doesn't matter how big our church is or how much money we got or how much power we got. If we got the Philippian 2 manhood, father to sonship thing going on, there will be young men and they'll say, I want that guy to be like my dad. That will happen. And let me say something to you now. Um, I want to give you some examples. It's happening. It happens not because men go, oh, 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 power, because the Holy Spirit comes over young men and middle-aged men and even older men. And when they see this beauty, this Philippians 2 beauty going out into the world, this humble, holy servanthood obedience, there will be potential sons, potential Timothys. They will perk up. Let me give you, tell you some stories. Um, um, when, I was a, when I was 15, <laughs> when I was 15, in this very church, by the way, in this very church, there was a deacon who later on became an elder. His name was Sang Ho Park. And Sang Ho Park was my Sunday school teacher. We're, we're asking some of you guys to be uh, um, youth teachers. He was my youth teacher. And Sang Ho Park was a mid-level executive at Hewlett Packard. He was a Korean guy. I was, like, I was like a Korean guy who speaks really good English. And as an executive at Hewlett Packard, I'd never even seen any guy. I didn't know that a Korean guy could become an executive at Hewlett Packard because I thought, wasn't that a white man's company? <laughs> and only smart white guys can make it at that company. But here is Sang Ho Park. And he, and I said, wow. And he was godly. He knew the gospel. He knew the scriptures. And he had a really great sense of humor. And he himself only had a daughter, and so I think he always wanted to have a son. And then he met a, a young guy like me, and I had a thing, and I loved the Lord, and I chased after Jesus. And he, he would put his arms around me, and he would laugh with me. And I could say to you, actually, I, I mean, oh gosh, I, I need to move on. Myself. Let me tell you something. Sangho Park, two years ago, his mother, his mother has been a long-term member of our church. She passed away, and so he came to our church to, to um, take care of the funeral, and I got to see him, right? And over dinner, we, you know, we, we held hands and we embraced. It was something like 2 Timothy chapter 1. I felt like I was meeting my dad, seeing my dad, <laughs> being a little emotional, and I was so grateful to him, right? And then I grew up to be a... A pastor, a, a know-nothing, well, mostly know very little, maybe know, not, know, know nothing, but very a, a young pastor. And, and in my youth, I was 26 years old, and a young guy came into our congregation. This is my first go-around as the pastor of the English congregation in this church. A young guy came to the church. He was 19 years old. Um, he was Chinese, and his name was Alan. And Alan listened to this, uh, you know, mostly don't know much, 26-year-old guy. And he said, that guy, I want that guy to be my pastor. He knows stuff of God. And he started chasing me. And Alan became as like a son to me. And then I would say, hey, we need, we need, um, we need Sunday school teachers. We need youth. And, and then Alan raised his hand. He said, he, and he went in. And then Alan, and then guess who the youth pastor was at the time? A guy sitting right back there, a guy named Young. <laughs> Young is just a couple years younger than me, and like I didn't know much, and Young knew even less. <laughs> and Alan 
became his, his uh, partner in ministry in the gospel, as it says right there. And then Young and Alan started to shepherd our youth. And there was a 12-year-old boy in the youth. His name is, can you guess? Frank. <laughs> and at the time, the youth group was not in good shape. And there was a lot of division. And there were cliques. And the older kids would lord it over the younger kids, just like Jesus said. And they would kind of pick on them and make fun of them. And so the younger kids kind of resented the older kids. And sometimes didn't like church. So Frank was a sixth, sixth grader, seventh grader. But you know what? He came to the youth group and he just ignored the older kids. He was like saying, hey, the 15 and 60-year-olds, they're not, they're not older brothers I want to follow. But you know why? He goes, I don't care. Because that guy up front, that guy's worthy. Frank looked at his pastor, his know-nothing pastor, almost know-nothing pastor, young. And he said, that guy, that guy, I'll let him be my dad. And Alan was his teacher. Alan was the sixth, seventh grade teacher. And Alan, on the weekends, would say, hey, guys, want to come over to my house? And he would take like three or four boys. And they would sleep over at his place. And they would, they would play board games and video games. And they would talk about life. And they would talk about God. And they would stay up all night. And those boys began chasing Alan, chasing him in his godliness. And Alan was a father to Frank. And then Frank grows older, goes off to college, graduates college, even spent another year or so with Young in his college years. And then he comes back home to San Jose, and then he gets this pastor um, whom he kind of knew was like this guy. When Frank was young, I was sort of like this, whoa, this like scary guy that was way, old, way too old, the EM pastor. Um, I have this crazy picture of one of the deacons. This is uh, Joe and Nathan's father. When I returned to this church six and a half years ago, he gave me this gift of a bunch of pictures. And one of the pictures was a picture from my ordination service. And guess who's sitting up front? A little 12-year-old kid named Frank. He looks like he's like eight, actually. <laughs> and I'm looking at him, and Grace looked at him. Is that Frank? I'm like, yes, he's sitting right there in my ordination service when I became a pastor. And then Frank is now coming, and he came under my spell in my first year or so here. And when Frank spent a year doing mission in Thailand, he started listening to my sermons online, and he starts bugging me. <laughs> Emails like, Pastor Seuss, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. I'm like, sure, I'm busy. I'll, I'll talk to you later. And then I'm kind of ignoring him because he's, he's, he's thousands of miles away. And then finally I said, okay. And I had never used Skype up to that point. I said, I go, let's do Skype. So I used Skype, and I thought it was crazy. I was like, this is crazy. It's like he's in the next room. And Frank had this, this super passionate excitement about Jesus. And then when Frank came back, I was reading this passage this week, so grateful to Young. Not only because he's my pastor, but I was so grateful to, to Alan. It was really weird because Alan was a son to me and then Alan fathered a boy named Frank. And Young followed, fathered this boy, Frank. And then Young sent his best guy to me, just like Paul sent his best man. And Young sent his best man guy to me. And now Frank is to be my son. And we have now an incredible youth group. We get you guys. 
right? I hope all, you should tell all the college guys who went off to school to listen to this message. Because it started back when young, and it started with me and young and Alan. We don't get you guys. I, I remember, Ron, I was thinking of you when I was thinking of this message. When I was at your wedding, and you said to me, you were looking at me and John Har and Doak, our wives and our children, and you said, yep, I want kids like you, like you guys. That's this. You're like a son to me, Rod. I love you, just like 2 Timothy 1. It's happening in our church. It's incredibly powerful. And when the men chase, we will have the very best men. And people in our city will say, where do you get these people? Do you know that when our youth go to bishop, that when our youth go to bishop, the Indian people in town look at our kids like they're magical. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know that. <laughs> the in, because their teenagers are nothing, they're all self-interested. And they're all chasing druggies, they're all becoming druggies and dropping out of school and they hate their parents and then they look at our kids and say, where did you get these kids? Do you know that our 55-year-olds and 65-year-olds look at our youth and said, look at these kids, because they know they're becoming Timothys among the very best men and women. It's happening. Let me go to um, the last portion of my message, giving and sending our best. Um, this is a, it's been a bittersweet week. Um, saying bye to our college guys. I feel like, you know what we're doing? I hope that, that they are becoming Timothys and we're sending our very best. Hmm. Um, Frank shared, I'm going to tell you a story and then I'm going to take you to the gospel and close the message. Frank shared a, a wonderful story in um, pastor's prayer meeting this week. Um, Frank got an email from Sarah Lee we got a few Sarahs, uh, but Sarah's one of our freshmen, and she must be quite talented and very disciplined and smart. Um, she got into Rhode Island School of Design, and for those, those of you who don't know, Rhode Island School of Design, it's a hotshot school. Okay, it's RISD. It's in Providence, Rhode Island. It's like right next to Brown, and um, it's sort of like the Ivy League of the design world. Okay, Sarah Lee went to um, RISD, and she found a, a campus fellowship called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. She met all these wonderful older brothers and sisters who were captured by the gospel. And she sent an email back to Frank and told her, him about her gratitude and joy of finding this fellowship. And Frank was telling the pastors about this. And he said, he, you know, Frank and I were having talks like we often do. Um, I often think of them as father-son talks. And he said... He said, uh, I, want, I was like, why'd she email me this, right? And he, goes, and he goes, oh, I get it. And he said, oh, I get it. I'm her shepherd. I'm her, like her spiritual father. She went off to college, and when she found this wonderful thing of Jesus, she wanted to tell her spiritual father. See? The father, the son thing, it's not even necessarily about guys, Although you got to get the guys first, and then you get the women too. And here is Sarah to Frank. 
hear the gospel. I want you to hear the gospel this way. There was a father. His great beauty and glory was not that he was almighty and most powerful and all the universe and angels serve him. That's not what made him most glorious. That is glorious about him, but that's not what makes him most glorious. What made him the best God. <laughs> you see, there are all kinds of other gods on all these other religions and secular gods too. But our God is a servant, humble God who spills himself out. That's the father. And he had a son. And his son, Jesus says in the Gospel of John that the son only does what he sees of the father. The son had a whole eternity gazing at his father, enjoying his father, incredibly enjoying this father-son love. As it's just that we get a little taste of in 2 Timothy 1 between Paul and Timothy. And his father said, son, down there they're so lost. They don't get it. They don't get holiness and humility. They don't get fatherhood and sonship. That's why the, the men just knock off their women and abandon their women. And, and, then, and then in these days, the women, then they kill their unborn babies because they're abandoned by the men because the men are not real men. That's what he said. And the son came to earth and he said, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he poured himself out like his father. His father gave and sent his very best, his very best man. And his very best man made himself nothing, taking the very essence of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself, being obedient to his father, so that the son could become as his father. And he would raise up spiritual sons. That's what the disciples are. That's what Paul is. And they would become fathers like Jesus. Jesus, who's a father, and raise up spiritual sons and daughters, because they would chase after, the son, after those sons. Timothy is the very best man, and change the whole world. This People are killing them, enslaving them and whipping them, and it cannot be stopped. This thing, Paul to Timothy, father to son, Jesus to Paul, Paul to Timothy, it cannot be stopped. It would change the whole world. And it's happening in our church. It cannot be stopped. It'll change San Jose. It'll change Vietnamese folks. It'll change Mexican folks. It'll change Chinese folks. Hey, I had a Chinese son. His name was Alan. And he changed a Korean boy named Frank. And Frank is discipling and fathering those who are not Korean too. And it cannot be stopped. So men, parents, 
Don't do a disservice to your children and don't bring them to church. You, you need to bring them to church all the time. <laughs> my, sometimes I, I'm lazy on Friday. I don't want to take my kids to church on Friday. I'm like, oh, I want to drive, drive. Oh, it's busy. The traffic kind of stinks. But when my son says, Dad, we got to go to church, you know what I know what he's doing? He's chasing his spiritual father, Frank. He's not only chasing me, he's chasing his spiritual father, Frank. Parents, bring your kids to church. You come to church. So they'll get other spiritual fathers and mothers. And then they'll have power and beauty and wonder in this life. And then we'll send them out and just we'll send our best. And San Jose will change and a beautiful, wonderful society will emerge. Let's pray. I'm so grateful, Father, for young, even before he became our assistant pastor. He fathered Frank. What would our church do without Frank? <laughs> How bereft would I be without the joy? One of the great joys I have is the laughter and conversations I get to have with Frank every week. And how I will weep one day when I say goodbye to him and send him and Nancy off to Thailand. <laughs> and how I long to see him. But I want to send to Thailand. I want to send to San Jose. We sent, we sent Roman to Toronto. He's like a son to me. And I felt like I, we were sending something of a, a Timothy kind of man to Toronto and his beautiful wife, Angela. And we're sending young Timothys and Loises and Eunices who raised up Timothy to be Timothy. We're sending them out. Would you raise up Timothys and Eunices and Loises in our church? The very best men and women. Because they're like you, Jesus. They are like you. They chase after the humility servanthood and obedience of the one who is God, who is equal to the Father, and yet did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And he came to serve us and spill out his beauty and holiness and humility to us. Thank you, Jesus, for this. Thank you, Father, for giving us your very best, your very best man, and to change our lives so that we would not be so lost and dead. Would you make San Jose New Hope a church churning with spiritual fatherhood and spiritual motherhood and spiritual sonship and beautiful young women like Eunice and Lois running out of this, sending them out into other cities, into this city. And we've become the most wonderful, glorious family, the gospel-centered family, the Jesus-centered family, a power and a mission which cannot be stopped. We pray for this. We long for this. Do this in our GLFs. Do this in our youth group. Do this in our worship service. Do this when we laugh and eat and talk to each other. May these beautiful relationships of spiritual fatherhood and sonship spill out in the men and the women in our church. We pray all this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.